Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. On the program today, lots to talk about. We'll find out about a new film called Dig Deeper that will be opening the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival this year. Uh, It's a documentary that presents a portrait of four different First Nations artists and their practices uh, and explores their their lives, the, the intersection between their art, their Aboriginality and their dual heritage. And one of those artists, uh, Ben McEwen, joins us on the line now. Ben, good morning. Hello, Richard. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So yeah. you are one of the subjects of Dig Deeper, the, uh, the film that is opening the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. Uh, tell yeah. us a little bit about what it's like to be asked to appear in a documentary, because I would imagine that could be a little bit terrifying, because you're really you're entrusting your story to somebody else's hands. Um, yeah, I, it was... Look, Mark Street, the director, and I have a <clears throat> had a previous relationship, um, and he's he's made it very comfortable to just open up and and have a bit of fun and be serious at the same time um, with the making of the film. We had worked together in two thousand and eighteen, I think, in a in a documentary, "Can Art Stop a Bullet?" and um, I featured in that, and um, through that interaction mark got me involved in this one so yeah i mean it was daunting um i've seen a bit of the film and i don't like seeing myself on the screen i don't think many people do um i certainly don't but but i think it's important to be able to tell our tell stories and and um, have an opportunity to do so now, one of the stories that is being explored in this film is the idea of the intersection of heritage, of your First Nations heritage, but also your European heritage. There's a, a mm. shot in the film, for example, of you kind of, uh, I think, crouched in front of a grave of uh, looking at the, the grave of one of your European descendants. Uh, and that kind of that creative tension is explored in the film, that cultural tension. And it's also explored mm. in some of your art as well. Uh, yes, uh, it features heavily in my practice, um, as, as it does in the other guys, I think, too. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, you know, a couple of years ago I had a health scare and it just made me think of my own immortality, I guess, and um, or my own mortality. And um, and I moved from Melbourne to back to Adelaide and it gave me the opportunity to actually seek out some of my ancestors who were laying in the ground, like laying in Ghana country, and they came over in, you know, the 1830s and 1840s and and are buried in a country that's so foreign to where they come from. I, I really like that tension. And, and um, it's, uh, yeah. And my work, my work explores the, um, uh, that, that place, that, that intersection of where the two, two cultures or two separate identities met. And, you know, uh, without that meeting, I wouldn't be here to, to be able to tell these stories. So I like to be able to reference both um, my Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal um, 
ancestors, I guess. Now, the other artists featured in the documentary, Black Douglas, Mari Clark and Penny Evans, are also exploring that kind of, that cultural overlay, that cultural intersection. Uh, How familiar are you with them and their practices as artists or with just with them as people before this documentary was made? Uh, I'd known Marie Clark for a while. We've, We've known each other since about 96, actually, so it goes back a little while. And um, Marie actually photographed for her Men in Mourning series. Um, I was I featured in one of my one of her works along with my partner as well. He did as well. Um, so we'd collaborated in that process. Um, Black Douglas, of course, I'd known of. Um, I think his work's quite iconic. Um, and Penny Evans. I had the pleasure of meeting through this process. Well, I haven't met her yet, but, you know, her and her work through this um, process, which is really quite nice that Mark's been able to, you know, find four, four, four separate artists from all around the country and kind of um, put us all together in a, in a really, I find, interesting way. What were you hoping that the film would achieve in terms of a in terms of an outcome, not just the process of making the film, but what it results in the message people take away from it? What did you, why I guess why did you participate in making the film, and and what did you want it to achieve or tell? That's a really good question. Um, look, I just I guess um, when I oh, I don't know. Any chance to be on the big screen, Richard? Any chance to be on the big screen? Um, <laughs> Except watching but, yourself. Yeah, I love it. No, I don't. But <laughs> um, I guess the idea that uh, Aboriginality, for me, as an artist, isn't just rooted... Like, my practice, or contem- my contemporary practice, isn't just rooted in one side, I guess. And this, this story explores... That and I guess as well, um, you know, um, Mark just came to me. He uh, came up about a painting I did a couple of years ago called "I Wonder," and I mean, in that painting, I did it. I painted it in maybe 1998, and um, it, it was 19 questions, and they all started. I wonder what it was like to live a thousand years ago. I wonder what it was like for my father's family to buy land stolen from other people. I wonder what it was like for my mothers to have their water holes poisoned and that sort of thing. And I kind of invited, through those questions, I invite the audience to, to just see that Australia's relationship with Aboriginal people, or my family in particular, because I'm talking about my experiences, is really quite complex. And that's what I wanted to get through in the film. It's just that it's it's quite a complex and personal um, relationship um, is your own identity and uh, and how it's explored. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, in terms of your identity and in terms of your art, the 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 use of text. How common in that is your work now? Uh, because f- from what I'm familiar with. Uh, uh, what I know of your work and certainly what I've seen of it uh, and what, what is presented in the film, uh, 
the, that text-based work that you mention um, seems a bit of, a, of an outlier in some ways. Is that the case, or are you using text more commonly? Um, no, I think it's, it was pretty early on in my career I was using the text, and, and the, the painting was um, acquired by the Cunahan Gallery, <clears throat> you know, back in the, I think, maybe 2000. And um, I kind of just shied away from it, I guess. I, I had, I, when I painted it, it got a bit of traction, and um, the, the, the poem itself got, you know, in his books and, and seen around the world um, through, through print, uh, the print medium. And then I just kind of stopped and uh, started on the landscapes, you know, the urban landscapes. Um, and I've just gone back to that, that text because I find, I've found my practice has, has led me that, in that direction. I've um, kind of gone full circle, actually. Is that coming um, full circle partially related to being back in South Australia, closer to your own people's country? I think so. Yeah, yeah. The whole, the whole, my whole um, creating experience has ended has led me to this point, and um, you know, it's quite an interesting phenomenon. I mean, yeah, we've, <clears throat> excuse me, we've, you know, been living in Melbourne for a while and and practicing there, and then. Um, slowly making my way back to the Air Peninsula, the West Coast. It's it's um, quite an experience, and it, the, it's a it's a grounding experience as well. It's a you can feel it in the in the in the air, the um, you know the the energies and the um, ancestral knowledge that's floating around, and and that all those questions that I asked. Um, 25 years ago, about dualities and and uh, conflict, um, I'm experiencing it here, being this much closer to home. I'm not too far from Elliston, and um, of course, Elliston's got a pretty dark history with um, uh, for Aboriginal people on the west coast, and it's <clears throat> it's it's. Um, I don't know. It's a real grounding experience being this close home. Ben McEwen is one of four Aboriginal artists featured in the new documentary Dig Deeper. The line itself comes from uh, uh, a quote by Penny Evans uh, where she talks about... uh, using a digging stick uh, and and hearing the voices of uh, of elders and people passed in her head uh, the f- uh, it's showing dig deeper at the Melbourne documentary film festival uh, so you can catch that at cinema Nova it will have its Australian premiere on Friday the 21st of July 6 15 p.m at cinema Nova in Carlton and Ben I understand you and Marie Clark will be at the screening and uh, there'll be a bit of a Q and a happening as well. Uh, yeah, I'm coming over for it. Um, will you be there? Will you coming along? I reckon I might have to try and get along. It'd be good to see you again. It's been a while. Yeah, I think, I think it'd be great. Um, yeah, and the Q&A will be fun too. Um, if I've, uh, you know, prepared myself for the... for the. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, we're going to have a Q&A after the screening. And I think it's, from what I heard yesterday, that's almost sold out. So that's really great news for the film. It's good for, for Mark and... 
and Fiona, it's good for us too because it means more people see it. The, you know, it's um, more people take away something from the film, whether it's, uh, well, whatever it is they take. Yeah. Um, and, it, yeah, it's interesting too, you know, the synchronicity of, of the, just the way life goes and our ancestors and things. I've been, make, you know, I've been um, making work out of clay as well, which people would see in the film. So, I mean, I, I hadn't known Penny or her practice and... You know, there's a scene in the film where Penny's digging for clay on country and there's a scene where I'm digging for clay on country and it's just a beautiful um, moment as well. Um, So you should check it out. Let me check it out. People will have the chance to see the Australian premiere of Dig Deeper, directed by Mark Street, at Cinema Nova on Friday the 21st of July, 6.15pm, as part of the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. The festival uh, in cinemas runs from the 1st to the 30... Sorry, from the 2nd to the 30th of July, but it's also... uh, Many of the films are available online throughout July up until the 31st of July. For full info about both watching online or IRL, go to mdff.org.au. That's mdff.org.au for more details about the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. I've been chatting with artist Ben McEwen, who's one of the four artists featured in the film Dig Deeper. Ben, lovely to chat. Thank you, Richard. Lovely. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. I'm joined by Stephen Mitchell Wright, who is directing a new production of Away at Theatreworks, and Justin Hosking, who is acting in said production. Gentlemen, welcome to you both. Thank you so much for having us, Richard. Thanks for having us. Stephen, we'll start with you. Away is, has become part of the canon of Australian theatre. What do we mean by a canon? I think, for me, the definition of a canon is stories that we revisit over time because they reflect something about our nature as a a people, as a country, as a community, as a culture. Um, And I think they can be both positive things that we revisit and and re-inquire about, and they can also be kind of staid things that uh, perhaps we either need to to re- revisit in different ways or, or reinvestigate or reinvigorate in new ways. Justin, what are we revisiting in a way? What are the, the kind of great themes of this play? Uh, good question. I'm glad you didn't give me the first question. So I'll, I'll roll with this one. Uh, um, for me, for me, it's more relationship-based. I mean, there's a, a bunch of themes going through it, but for me it's about uh, relationships and, the, and the, where relationships can almost break you know, relationships can break, but underneath all that relationship, there's a whole lot of love too. And so it's really messy with regards to, um, you know, different relationships in the, in, in the play. Um, I play a character who's a father of a, of a child and, and uh, we grew up through the, through the depression and, and we're keeping up with the Joneses and, and trying to, trying to th- everything's great. And, but underneath it all, we're, you know, we're struggling with our own pain and every, every sort of character is, is going through their own drama, but yet within their sort of familial um, relationships, there's there's a whole lot of love. So that's what's the most sort of important theme amongst others for me. In terms of restaging a work like this, Stephen, what are the challenges given that uh, it's on the 
the, the, the curriculum at school, mm-hmm. for example. So it will be very familiar to some people. Uh, some of the students coming to see it may even have acted in school productions because it's become that kind of beloved Australian classic in that regard that high school productions are put on all over the country. How do you bring something new to something that will be so familiar to some people? I think um, for me, something that something that happens through repetition within the canon, within the the Australian classics, definitely is this kind of reduction of form that works through repetition become uh, not reduced in a negative way, but kind of boiled down to a version of naturalism. And I don't believe that's what Michael has actually written. My my view of this work is that it's 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 a lot larger than naturalism. His book ended the work with Shakespeare. He's written it in a five-act structure. There's operatic elements woven throughout and for me coming to this production, I went, I, I want to make sure that we stay in that space. We stay in this heightened, leaning on Aussie larrikinism and these larger-than-life Australian characters and this brass Aussie boldness of person uh, that, that, is, that is evident in the text for me. We talked early in the, in the work about kind of filmic references like the supporting actors in Strictly Ballroom and almost everyone in Muriel's Wedding and this kind of very Australian performance style that is considerably larger than kitchen sink domesticity. So when we've come to this production, we've definitely lent into that and making sure with, with the senior ensemble and also the addition of the, the junior ensemble from the early career actors from Coll Arts, we've got this kind of Shakespearean scale work that is still very much rooted in, in, as Justin said, these familiar relationships, dealing with grief and loss and how we rebuild after significant um, tragedy, both personally and, and nationally. And, yeah, but making sure that it's fun. It's fun to sit in that space and it's fun for the actors to sit in that space and that we experience some kind of uh, escapism through tragedy. When you're leaning into those kind of, I don't know, kitsch Australian stereotypes that you've mentioned and, and the filmic references you've mentioned, how do you avoid overstepping uh, so that it just becomes kitsch and camp rather than being an actual drama? I don't think you avoid it. You, you, you go there so you know what's too far. You, you run at it. You know, you know. We, did, we did runs where we kind of developed this scale in rehearsals where I went, okay, if one is absolutely the camera's at your face naturalistic and 11 is completely detached from truth, panto vaudevillian performance let's do let's do a run at seven let's do a run at nine let's do a run at five so that we had this kind of shared language of being like okay in this scene i think we need to we need to push that up a little bit let's let's see how this works at an eight and then then get it wrong and be like that's too much (laughs) and that that's funny but that's not the point of this scene so let's pull it back and find the truth through that i mean justin can speak to that yeah i guess if you're finding you know the, the the truth through the through the large-scale performance, it'll still ring true to the audience. You know, they'll still uh, um, connect to it and be affected by it. Yeah. And and I just really love that idea of really enjoying something for, for its grandiosity, but also being pulled along the story with the, with the story and then being affected by the story. In terms of the story it tells, given that the it's set in what for some people is a recent past, uh, but for others is 
so far distant to be almost imaginary. Uh, the idea, for example, of uh, families dealing with the trauma of the Vietnam War and the, the struggle of the war that is going on around them. I mean, this is set the year that I was born, for example. I regularly chat to work colleagues who go, oh, yeah, I was born in, like, 1984 or 1994 or whatever. So for them, this is a past that is almost mythical, in a way, does it do those dramas? Do these characters still feel relevant? Do you think to a contemporary young secondary school audience? Well, personally, I do. Um, well, I'm not a secondary school audience, so I'll say that first, first and foremost. But you know, my father um, grew up through that time, and so there's shades of my father through these characters that, so I can, and so I would, I have young children myself. My my sister has a child who's older, who's 22 now, and she has that same grandfather who's my father. So she can feel the essence of those archetypes, I would suspect, through through an older generation. But, but it is a good question. Yeah, I think it's interesting in this produ- production, we've got people from uh, our most senior and experienced artist on the team, Greg Carroll, who is of an age where he was actually looking at being conscripted. He, the Vietnam War was very real to him. The Great Depression was very real to him. And then we have kids that are 18 in, in the Collarts Junior Ensemble. And watching how these different generations and different age groups and different lived experiences interact with the stories, there are definitely different ways of connecting with them. But I think younger audiences connect with myth and fantasy in a way that is very different to the way we did or my generation did because the the way uh, pop culture and and the way they re- they receive film and television and stories is naturalism is interwoven with fantasy is interwoven with myth and myth is a part of every everyday storytelling so i think it's about the way they buy into characters and the way they receive characters and the way they see themselves in characters is has shifted quite significantly much like their listening trends with spotify now kids know intergenerational music much with much greater ease than we did because they don't have to go and find the CD. They can type it in in seven seconds and be listening to it and decide if they like it or not. There is something delightful in that regard in terms of music of... uh when I'm talking to friends with teenage kids, for example, they'll go, oh, my teenagers are suddenly into the Rolling Stones and yeah, yeah. Uh, or, the, uh, or the Clash or something yeah. like that. Or Nirvana or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you think young people discover theatre in the same way? Oh, that's a very different question. Um, no. And I think a lot of young people are looking for the kind of experience that I think we're hoping to give with Away. They're looking for something that's exciting and big and playful and moving and brazen. Uh, Because I think more and more television and film is moving into the kind of spaces that theatre used to historically sit in where where they were able to be more experimental and play with form in in more overt ways. And I think within the theatre where we're at an interesting turning point with what's happening with AI and with streaming where I think we need to ask that question again. What can theatre do really uniquely that television, that AI, that gaming cannot do? Um, And I think that's the kind of experiences that young audiences are looking for. 
Justin, I'm going to ask you that question. What can theatre do that uh, other art forms can't? What will this production of Michael Gow's Away at TheatreWorks give to its young audiences, who some of whom might be seeing a live play for the first time? Yeah, um, I think um, just piggybacking what Stephen was saying, you know, the, 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 the way we're presenting, or Stephen's presenting, I'm being part of it, so I guess you know, I'm part of the cog in the wheel, of presenting this piece, it is captivating for, the, for a young audience as opposed to, you know, I always think that um, kids, when they first see uh, theatre, they'll probably see a high school production of something, which is is what it is and you know it's not always the most engaging piece of theatre so they're sort of scarred potentially scarred earlier in in watching their theatrical experience but this sort of thing will really draw kids in through theatrically visually and and through sound and the, the scope of what we're doing but then uh, and that seduces them into the story and so therefore uh, i guess what they get out of it is they can they can really hear the story and 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 feel what Theatre can, you know, really affect people on a on a really emotional level because it's live. You can't sort of walk out the door and turn it off and come back to it five minutes later. It's there. You're stuck in. You're, you're locked in. And if and if it's entertaining and and done very well, then you know they can, uh, without sounding too sort of big, they have a have an experience they'll remember forever. Well, certainly uh, a recent TheatreWorks production that I saw, the production of Moth, which was also on the syllabus, I saw it with uh, an audience, half of whom I think were high school kids seeing theatre for the first time and just hearing the gasps from uh, some of the, the young people seated, seated behind me, the, the kind of whispered realisation of what was happening and how it was happening uh, was it's kind of magical to have for me as a kind of, I don't know, kind of... Uh, rusted on old theatre goer of many decades now to to be reminded of the palpable magic that theatre can have, and Away is certainly a production that is very conscious of the magic of theatre. Absolutely, as you said, Stephen, it, it kind of opens and closes with with Shakespeare, um, but interwoven into that is what could be mundane. The, the stories of three Australian families and their the, the challenges of their lives, their internal lives. But Gao finds a magic in that as well. He does. And he also, he's got some very intelligent and sophisticated theatrical conventions in there too. Like, yes, it's a story of three families, but they get thrown together on a, on a beach by an unexplained storm. Um, there's, there's some magical things happening on the rooftop. There's also, there's a whole bunch of stuff that Michael doesn't, over-explain in the text. There's a lot of mystery in the text. He leaves a lot of space for play and imagination and transformation in the audience's head. It's it, Especially in Act 4 and 5, it's not a particularly didactic work. It doesn't reduce itself. It keeps a lot of space and a lot of mystery in there. Justin, you've done a lot of theatrical work over the years as uh, and, and also kind of, uh, I believe, some uh, TV work and so on as well. Have you done a production of Away before? No, I haven't. And to be fair, like I, when, when it came across my desk, so to speak, you know, as a term and phrase, um, I read it in high school, but I couldn't really remember what it was about, to be fair. Um, I'm part of Red Stitch and we did Sweet, the- uh, Sweet Phoebe a number of years ago. So obviously I know Michael Gow and know somebody's work, but I didn't didn't really know it. And to read it again was like reading it again for the first time. And I just adored it, you know. I just... I adored, I, I, to the point that I then knocked on my dad's door, so to speak, and I was asking him questions about the Vietnam War and did conscription, did you get called up? And did, did your mates... I know some of his mates get called up. What was that like? So it just really, you know, it, it took me away. <laughs> Very appropriate. Yeah. Um, 
I'm also interested in that experience because when you certainly, I know for my personal experience and that of some other friends, being taught set texts in secondary school can actually make you hate the text. Uh, how did you feel about a way at the time, can you remember, versus how you felt with that revisitation? Yeah, I, I, I can't quite remember. It didn't make a big impact on me, I'll say that much. You know, uh, you know Sorry, Michael, but, uh, you know, it's, <laughs> um, yeah, I can't quite remember. Yeah, I yeah. remember the, kind of the story-ish, but I, yeah, I can't remember how, how it affected me. But then that vivid difference for contemporary students who will come and see the production, they're not just going to analyse it in classroom. They're going to come to Theatre Works in St Kilda and see this play on the curriculum brought to life before their eyes. Yeah, yeah. and, and I, it's a visual feast too. No, the, no doubt. The, world, the worlds we're, we're conjuring in the piece, they're, they're pretty magical. The, the set is definitely one of the biggest I've ever seen in Theatre Works. Um, in the in the time that I've been there, um, and it's it's a pretty wild ride. I think kids are going to walk in and they're going to go on an adventure with it. Yeah, and I just love the fact that I, I, when I went to school, I never read a, a play and then went and saw it. And I think this is a great opportunity for you know the kids to see what they think it's going to be and what interpretation of text can be as well from a theatrical presentation of something. Away at TheatreWorks is showing from the 8th to the 22nd of July. TheatreWorks located at 14 Ackland Street, St Kilda. Jump online for more details. www.theatreworks.org.au. I've been chatting with Stephen Mitchell Wright, who is directing the production, and Justin Hosking, who is one of the cast. Guys, thanks heaps for coming in. Thank you so much, Richard. Thanks for having us. Triple R. If you're a regular or long-term listener to this show, you'll probably have heard a few interviews over the years with the National Institute of Circus Arts, uh, based here in Melbourne, a national institution for training and developing the next generation of circus talent. Graduates from NICA, as it's known, go off to work for some of Australia's great circus companies, such as Circa and Gravity and Other Myths. They also go internationally to circus companies around the world. Currently, there's a bit of concern in the circus sector because Swinburne, which is the parent body of NICA, Swinburne University, has announced a, uh, a pause or a freeze of the 2024 student intake for NICA, the National Institute of Circus Arts, um, while they assess NICA's alignment with Swinburne's strategic priorities. What does that mean? Well... To help us uh, unpick the situation, I'm joined on the line by Richard Hull, who is the CEO of Australia's national youth circus company, the Flying Fruit Fly Circus. Richard, good morning, and thank you for joining us. Hi, Richard. Nice to talk to you. What does this situation at NICA mean for, for example, some of the older students at the Fruities? Oh, well, it's very troubling. I, I mean, I should say, first of all, probably that... Uh, NICA and uh, and the Fruities are, are partner organisations. We're both very proud to be members of the Arts Eight Group, uh, which is a group of national uh, training um, arts training organisations. Includes also NISDA and NASDA, our First Nations Dance Academy, Afters, AYO, ANAM, ABS, and you know we're we're a little like NATO in as much as a, you know a, an attack on one of us is an attack on all. So so I, 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 I'm feeling quite exercised. By it all, and I think for like um, 
you know, our students in, in the short term immediately, it's just been very destabilizing because there was a, a pathway uh, that we've been nurturing with them, with a, particularly a couple of the students this year who uh, were considering going to NICA. Uh, and without any warning, that pathway has been closed down by, by Swinburne. So we have to find them, um, you know, alternatives. I mean, if I, uh, if I may, if I could just perhaps step back a little and, and paint what I think is the, is the bigger picture here, and that is that, you know, if I'm a, if I'm a young person with a passion for music, dance, um, <clears throat> acting, filmmaking, musical theatre, whatever, there will be a range of opportunities for me to dig deeper into my uh, art form, to explore my practice, to specialise, to become as good as I can be with some of the best trainers and artists uh, in the world um, through uh, and grow my, my network of connections, you know, through higher education. If I want to be a musical theatre performer, I can apply to NIDA, BCA, uh, Whopper in Western Australia and other colleges and universities. However, if my passion is circus, like, you know, all of our students at the Flying Fruit by Circus and those two students who wanted to go to NICA this year, um, uh, and they want to follow that similar path through higher education, they can only apply to the National Institute of Circus Arts. There is nowhere else in our nation that offers a three-year Bachelor of Circus Arts degree. So you could argue that, that circus as an art form is already a little bit uh, impoverished in, in, in that regard. And my concern here isn't that um, circus will cease to exist if NICA fails. Of course it won't. There are other pathways. People choose all sorts of ways to, to um, transition into the industry, to learn their craft, to become professional artists and so on. Um, our graduates of the Fruities may be offered, uh, you know, professional contracts straight out of um, um, from graduation. Uh, they've trained for up to 10 years already, um, after all, when they leave us. And, uh, and we have seven working in Montreal with Cirque du Soleil at the moment. We have students in Gravity and Other Myths and Circa and Cassis in shows like Blanc de Blanc, which I went to see last night with Annie, very entertaining, by the way, and one's in Sydney. Um, you know, working on cruise ships, developing their skills in social circus. So, so it's, it's, not, it's not an issue of the survival of circus as an art form, but what troubles me is that without NICA, the art form is, um, is diminished and it's demoted to the fringes once again, not seen as a legitimate career choice for talented, dedicated young people who want to be acrobatic circus performers. And, you know, it, it's, it's scandalous, really, because circus is thriving around the world. Um, and, you know, I want to see Australia continue to play its part in that. And, and I'm afraid the damage at Swinburne University is already done by pausing the enrolments for 2024. I mean, what does that mean, Richard? Like, you, as you said in your introduction, I mean, they've cancelled... Um, the uh, enrolments for 2024, uh, and no institution can financially or reputationally cope with that. Um, so I, I hope that Swinburne reverses the decision today. It's, it seems very short-sighted and very illogical. And certainly in terms of developing the next generation of circus artists, one of my great fears from this situation is that if young people cannot go 
to NICA to continue their circus training and to become the best circus artists they can do. They will probably, if they want to continue that, that training, go overseas. Yeah. And once they're overseas, there's no guarantee that they will come back. So we could lose dozens of very talented young circus artists to places like uh, Montreal or schools uh, elsewhere uh, because the, the, that pathway, as you say, the gate has been suddenly sh- slammed shut in people's faces. I think that's absolutely right, and I think that's part of the reason uh, that, that NICA was founded, that, that, that people within the industry who are passionate about it realise that a lot of the talent uh, had to go overseas in order to uh, you know, continue their training and their, and their practice and to you know, become world-leading and... Um, didn't come back necessarily. Uh, you know, one of our other students who was considering uh, NICA for this year has now accepted a place at a school called Code Arts in the in the Netherlands, and um, he's a, a, a you know an exceptionally talented juggler and manipulator, and I think you know he has a wonderful career ahead of him. But um, and I, I, you know, I wish him well. I'm sure he'll have a really great experience in Europe. But uh, it would have been more satisfying for him to for us to be able to transition him into our kind of sister school in, in, in Melbourne and better for the industry, really, that those great emerging talents um, emerge here in Australia and not in Europe. Now, as we've said, Swinburne have paused enrolments for the Bachelor of Circus Arts for 2024. They have stressed that... Uh, Swinburne has stressed that there is no change for current students who will continue their studies at NICA, including the 22 students who commenced their Bachelor this year. But... I guess, Richard, from your perspective at the the Flying Fruit Fly Circus, why do you think Swinburne have done this as opposed to uh, letting operations at NICA continue as usual, including uh, auditions this month and an intake in 2024 as usual? Why throw a spanner in their works? What is the the end game here? Well, that's a good question. I mean, uh, it doesn't really seem to make any sense. I mean, first of all, of course, Swinburne is entirely entitled to, um, uh, you know, to, to review its strategic priorities, to look at the courses that it offers and, uh, you know, various um, programs that it's involved with um, and decide that something no longer fits with those priorities. Of course, the universities do that um, all the time. Um, and if Swinburne wants to decouple from NICA, uh, I there's no problem with that. But I, I, what I can't understand is the way that they've gone about it because what seems to be ha- happening, and look, I'm not on the, I'm not on the inside. I mean, I, I, I'm speaking out in some ways because I know that my friends and colleagues at NICA are not able to because they're all employed by Swinburne University. Uh, the students are all Swinburne U- University students uh, and they've all been instructed to, to not speak out. So uh, they're gagged effectively and... Um, and so, uh, you know, I feel that, um, you know, I, I'm able to say what I can say, but I don't have, you know, the full inside information of what's going on. And I hope there are conversations and meetings and all sorts of stuff going on behind the scenes to get this sorted out really quickly. But, but whether it's deliberate or it's just dumb, uh, Swinburne University are crippling NICA. Uh, NICA's already... The building's already been sold by Swinburne to the Victorian government. The whole campus was sold, and the NICA building was sold with, I think, a 30 or $40 million 
component of the $130 million that Swinburne got for that sale. Uh, a building, by the way, that Swinburne uh, didn't build or pay for. It was paid for by the federal government um, and, and a lot of philanthropic and fundraising support. Um, and so, so the building is sold um, and sold to the Victorian government, who are now charging NICA, uh, as I understand it, a commercial rent, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. Well, that's not sustainable. Uh, and it also flies in the face of an agreement that I understand uh, Swinburne made with the federal government that they would only ever charge NICA's peppercorn rent for 99 years. Uh, now, I don't know where that agreement's gone. You would think it would be disclosed in part of the sale to the Victorian government, although maybe it would not have made that sale if it would seem quite so attractive to the Victorian government. But th that agreement still exists somewhere, and I hope someone's um, looking for it. Uh, <clears throat> and, uh, and then on top of that, by pausing the enrolments for 2024, that's another whole uh, income stream that's not going to be available to NICA for the next financial year. And also... Uh, you know, you want to hand over the, the healthiest, most successful organisation you can to another provider, another university, whoever it might be. And for that, you need a, a you know a healthy pipeline of new students. And uh, you know, it's there. People want to audition for NICA. It's not like they're struggling to get people interested and wanting to be a part of the of the program. Um, so it seems very self-destructive, and perhaps. Perhaps Swinburne thinks that by there's a bit of brinkmanship going on here, that, that, that they're kind of forcing the hand of the Victorian government and the federal government to uh, come up with a solution. But but uh, but but at what expense? And, and and where is the where is the board in all of this? Uh, you know, I I, I understand that, that NICA is a controlled entity of Swinburne. I don't know all the legal ins and outs of controlled entities, but you would think that. You know, whether you're on the board of a controlled entity or a company of any kind, surely uh, you have a duty to act in the best interest of that entity or that company. Um, now, the chief financial officer is the chair of NICA. The other two members, and then only the other two members of the board, as I understand, both employed by Swinburne. And, of course, why wouldn't they be acting in the best interest of Swinburne? That's who employs them. And so, and so nothing wrong with them being on the board, but where's the independent voice for NICA? Uh, on that board, where's, the, where's the, the person with the skills and the experience and the connections and the understanding of how the circus industry works, and where's the person who is speaking up for the staff, for the leadership team there, for the, for the students there? Um, you, you know, I, I would hope that the board are having regular contact with Simona, who's the executive director there, to make sure that she's all right, because this is a very stressful an anxious time to be leading an organisation in these circumstances, and she needs to be supported, and the, the leadership team needs to be supported there, the staff and the students need to be supported, and I would hope that the board are taking their responsibilities in that regard very seriously. Now, the Australian federal government has said that as the primary funding body of NICA, uh, that the uh, Australian government is working with Swinburne University to find a solution. We will see what comes out of that. Richard, do you think there's a possibility that uh, a new university would pick up the running of NICA, uh, perhaps a university where there could be a better fit? Now, that could be uh, the University of Melbourne, which also runs, for example, uh, the VCA, but that could also potentially be... Uh, one of the universities interstate, such as the university that runs WAPA. Yeah. 
Well, if I was the vice chancellor of the University of Melbourne, I'd be on the phone today um, trying to broker a deal because I think, uh, you know, NICA seems like an extremely comfortable fit for uh, the University of Melbourne and uh, the VCA who, you know, understand and value and invest uh, in the arts. So, <clears throat> um, look, I, I, I don't know who the sort of stakeholders are, the potential stakeholders or the players in all of this. Of course, NICA sits on now sits on what is the uh, Melbourne Polytechnic campus, uh, which is, a, uh, you know, a Victorian government entity. So you'd think there'd be some synergy there. And um, I hope there are conversations happening. And look, I, I, I think, you know, everybody else, apart from Swinburne, clearly, um, everybody else wants to see NICA succeed and they want to get, a, you know, a, a swift resolution to this. And... Um, and I'm sure that there will be conversations happening between um, the, the um, Office for the Arts and for the federal government and with the Victorian government and, you know, with other potential stakeholders. What, what I just um, hope is that, the, that, that there's some urgency in all of this because the damage is being done. Um, and even if Swinburne just reversed that one decision and allowed NICA to take their enrolment to 2024, it would... It would provide some breathing space and some more time for all the potential players to get around the table and come up with a, um, a solution and a smooth transition into a new, um, a new kind of educational provider for, for NICA. It, it doesn't need to be this difficult, and I, and I don't really understand Swinburne's motivations behind it, but um, clearly there's a lot of dollars involved. It's certainly a watch-this-space situation. I'll certainly be keeping my eye on that, as I'm sure the rest of the circus sector will as well. I'm speaking with Richard Holt, the CEO of the Flying Fruit Fly Circus, who, on a brighter note, Richard, I believe you're currently wowing audiences at Sydney Opera House with a new show called uh, Spherical. Any chance that might be coming to Melbourne? (laughs) Well, I think uh, we're hoping to bring us, we're hoping to bring Tempo to Melbourne uh, next year, which is the show we performed at the Opera House last year. Um, where Spherical goes from here, I don't know, but we were we have a wonderful relationship with um, with the Sydney Opera House. We present a new work here every year, uh, and this year they commissioned us to make a work for their 50th anniversary. So Annie Davy, our brilliant um, and intrepid artistic director, dreamed up Spherical, inspired in a fairly loose flying fruit fly circus kind of way on the um, spherical solution that solved the engineering challenges of constructing these world-famous roof sails. Uh, but really, it's just an excuse to have some knockabout fun and showcase the amazing skills of our 12 young cast members. The youngest is 10. Uh, and we have aerials, hoop diving, acrobatics, and audience, uh, audiences are lapping it up. So it's a, it's a great joy and privilege to, to be here at the Opera House. Glad to know it's doing well. And, uh, yes, while the future of NICA might be uncertain, the future of the Flying Fruit Fly Circus is robust indeed. For more info about NICA, go to nica.com.au. I've also got a story up on Arts Hub that goes into a lot of detail about what's going on uh, with that situation. There's also been a story in The Age, uh, and myself and other journalists, I'm sure, will keep following it. Uh, And you can find out more about the Flying Fruit Fly Circus by going to fruitflycircus.com.au. I've been chatting with Richard Hull from The Fruities. Richard, thanks so much for joining us on the program today. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. 
If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. It's a pleasure to welcome my next guest to the airwaves. Lindy Hume AM is a renowned director of opera across Australia and indeed internationally and has also had a long and successful career as a festival director as well. But joins us to talk about a new production which is unusually a co-production between Victorian Opera and Opera Australia. Lindy, welcome to Triple R. And am I right in thinking this is the first time these two opera companies have collaborated on a production? Yeah. Hi, Richard. Nice to, nice to be with you. Yes, it is, I think. Um, it's it, in, in their current forms, that's true. Um, opera Australia and um, is the formation, in fact, of the Victoria State Opera and the then Australian Opera, of course. Um, so there has been a long kind of collaboration in that sense. And before that, uh, Opera Australia and Victoria State Opera used to collaborate. But now that they're different entities, this is the first collaboration between Victorian Opera and Opera Australia. Yep. And what does that then mean in terms of ambition and scale of a show? Look, I think what's interesting about this is it allows Victorian Opera, this collaboration with Victorian Opera and Opera Australia gives gives more resources in a way to the the smaller partner Victorian Opera to create something of scale um, that perhaps their their normal funding environment wouldn't wouldn't um, allow and and also but but on the other side for Opera Australia this is a fantastic opportunity for uh, for the national company to demonstrate a more collaborative. Uh, approach and a sense of, of um, connecting with the opera community around Australia. So it's a really great, um, I guess, prototype. I think collaborations are all, um, and I've done a lot of them in my time as, a, as an opera artistic director, but also as a festival director, collaborations are the future and they are the way, where people, way for people to, you know, to create something that's greater than the sum of its parts, and that's certainly been the case with this collaboration on Idomeneo. Idomeneo is uh, a work by Mozart, uh, written when he was just 24, uh, which already makes me feel like a failure in my life. I wasn't writing operas when I was 24. But tell us about Idomeneo. It's uh, inspired by, or is it inspired by, or is it telling a story from Greek myth? It's inspired by Greek myth. It's actually not. Idomeneus was one of the generals of Agamemnon's army, one of the one of the um, numbers of ships from the you know catalogue of a thousand ships that went to to Troy to um, to take on to return um, Helen back to to Menelaus, uh, Agamemnon's brother. And so, Idomeneus, uh, the general, uh, the king of Crete, was one of the kings that joined that great. Uh, War for ten years, and in fact, Idomeneus was one of the generals um, still standing at the end of that war who was in the Trojan horse. So he was very much a pivotal uh, character in the sacking of Troy. So that's the backstory to this um, to this uh, story. So we have a a war a war trophy who is uh, Ilia, the the daughter of King Priam, um, who is uh, suddenly in in Crete. 
uh, and he's she's under Idomeneo's um, protection, and that's that's an interesting kind of little uh, part of part of the story, and we'll get to that the rest of it in a minute. And then um, Idomeneo, the story itself um, sits in the world of the post Trojan War aftermath. So it sits in the same world of, for example, the Odyssey, where the the generals were returning back to their home island across the Aegean and um, and, in, and as, as Odysseus had the various adventures along the way of getting back home, so Domineo um, meets um, uh, a storm and to uh, placate uh, Neptune, King Neptune, uh, the, the god Neptune, um, he agrees to sacrifice his... Uh, First, uh, to, to the first person he meets on the on the shores of Crete, um, if if Neptune will allow his ship and his men to arrive safely and not drown in the storm, so that was that's the vow he makes to Neptune, and unfortunately the first person he meets on the beach is his son, and so it's kind of um, it is based on Greek mythology in the sense that there are characters from Greek mythology in the in the opera, including, of all people, Electra, so Agamemnon's daughter, is in the story as well. But um, it's not a, in, in itself a myth. Now, you described one of the female characters as a war trophy, which is kind of confronting language to use in some ways and which perhaps also highlights one of the, the current challenges facing any opera director is that some of the canon of work you are working with uh, has what's been described as a, a bit of a misogynist undercurrent in which women are regularly kind of strangled with their own hair, stabbed, thrown off balconies, murdered in various unpleasant ways. When you're directing a work like this, aware that it is uh, a, a classical work from the canon, how do you do justice to some of those challenging themes while also hopefully not alienating the contemporary audience who are coming to see it at the Palais Theatre in Melbourne? Uh, look, I think this work is an extraordinary work, Richard. And, and um, as you might, you probably know, I've just come out of it my last 10 days on the island in which we uh, presented Archipelago Productions' production of Women of Troy, the Euripides um, play, which is exactly the same period and exactly the same problem. And it's set through the, looking through the eyes of the, of the very women we're talking about. So, in fact... Ilia in Idomeneo, her sister, as, as the daughter of Hecuba and Priam, would have been Cassandra and Andromache. Um, so there are, you know, there are incredible parallels in the Greek, um, in the Greek mythology, mythological canon that you can use as immediate kind of um, tropes to um, to relate to these characters. I think it's a very easy thing. I think the important thing is just to name it as what it what it is. I think, you know, I think uh, the problem is for many years opera has named those women um, victims, for example, or, you know, tragic heroines. And there's a, been a kind of iconography around those characters that sees suffering as part of their allure, whereas we, uh, you know, don't forget opera audiences are 70% women, and I don't think women see those characters in that way anymore. They see them as, as, as I say, war, war trophies or, um, or uh, women who are in some way dealing with an oppression that they haven't um, created themselves, but they are, you know, thrust into. So 
I think it's about looking at those um, characters through the eyes of contemporary women and and respecting them in that in that way. And often the works transform when you look at the characters in that way. You see how, for me, it's been such a joy to have two astonishing um, princesses on stage. The princess Electra, who of course is the the daughter of uh, the enemy of um, of the, the, the son of uh, the daughter of uh, Priam. So you've got this incredible, um, you know, polarity between these amazing uh, women, uh, a Greek and a Trojan. Um, and so why would you not play with that as a strength rather than just going for the um, the, the strength, which is amazing, of the title role? Lindy, in terms of the music of the work, talk to us uh, uh, about that side of uh, Idomeneo. I understand, for example, that some of the, the vocal parts are particularly challenging, even by operatic standards. Oh, it's, it's an absolute um, mountain to climb, this one. Um, not least because the, the character Idomeneo himself uh, is... You know, that, that, that role was created for a tenor who was um, at the top of his game and the, at the end of his career, but his whole job was, his whole life had been spent perfecting coloratura. Um, and so he, the, his great big aria in Act 2, Fort del Mar, in which he describes he's left the, 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 the storm behind him and yet the storm persists in his, in his heart, um, of, of what you know, the the, the curse that's upon him. Um, it is an absolute monster of an aria to for any tenor to um, to sort of approach. Uh, it has pages upon pages of coloratura, and um, and it's a it's sort of six or seven minutes long um, of you know really physical physically draining um, stuff, but magnificent music and powerful in the orchestra. Same thing with Electra. Electra's uh, final, uh, she has two killer arias, one at the beginning of the show and then the final, almost the penultimate um, moment of the show is, is Electra's, what is now known as the Rage aria, where she calls up, um, evokes all the, the Furies that, um, and Orestes, her brother, and all the Furies who rage around Orestes to come to her and tear out her heart. Uh, so at the very last, you know, she's she's been she's had enough of the grief of her of, and suffering of her own family's life, and she's lost her great love, um, Idamante, who is Domineo's son. Uh, so she's just decided enough is enough, and she wants to go and tear herself into pieces. So this aria is the, almost the second last thing uh, that happens in the opera. It's a killer. It had demands incredible vocal range and. Um, and flexibility, and you know, it's a terror—it's sort of terrifying for sopranos. Or sopranos absolutely love it and want to grab it with both hands. Is the case with Olivia Cranwell, who's singing the role, and of course Steve Davislam, who's singing Idomeneo, um, has the same approach: bring it on, you know. Um, so it's, it, they are really extraordinary um, pieces of athleticism, apart from just being amazing vocal um, vocal challenges. My guest is Lindy Hume, who's directing Idomeneo for the Victorian Opera and Opera Australia co-production, which opened on Tuesday at the Palais Theatre in St Kilda. There's another performance tonight at 7.30pm and another performance on Saturday at 7.30pm, and you can go to victorianopera.com.au for details. Lindy, 
Given your experience as a director, one of the things that I have to ask is, is one of the joys of working in opera the fact that you are working not just with the grand emotions and great music that you've described, but you've really got all the toys at your disposal. In theatre, you're mainly working with actors. Uh, in ballet, you're working with dancers. But in opera, you're working with an orchestra. You're working with a chorus, with dancers, with, with soloists. You've got sumptuous sets and costumes. Is this really the, the, the most fun a director can have? <laughs> uh, it, it, it is a great working at scale, I must admit. I do love working at scale and there doesn't there is no more greater scale than Mozart's a Domineo in the sense that you know we're talking about what do what how do you direct the voice of Neptune <laughs> turning turning destiny upside down? You know that's an extraordinary challenge for a director. Um, and of course the, the forces, you know, the big chorus, the big the, the big orchestras, and the you know the amazing singers and so forth. Um, it, it is it is a great. Um, privilege and a great um, pleasure to have those big forces at your disposal. Um, and the other big force that we have in Edomineo is um, we're, we're working very much with video and film um, to capture the natural world in this production. And I have the great pleasure of working with um, the amazing videographer Dave Bergman, um, has captured incredible. Tasmanian landscapes of sea and sky and, and coastal waters and rocks and albatrosses and things. Um, and, and he's uh, known to Melbourne artists, or artists around, audiences around Australia as the, the guy that did all the videography for the picture of Dorian Gray. So now he's, and also our beautiful Winter's Journey with music, for Music of Eva. He's an incredible man who can bring uh, bring theatricality to uh, screens on stage in a way that um, I think, you know, 10 years ago it was all about the, the digital technology being the star and now it's still about the human human being the star with Dave's incredible visuals around it. Um, yeah, so it's, it is nice working at scale. It is nice working with, with big ideas and big imagery, um, but it's also just Basically, what it boils down to is the human voice. What it boils down to is one human talking, in this case singing, to another human in the audience. And I like that human connection more than any, um, anything else. If, if opera has, is just reduced to one thing, it's simply that. It's just simply one human singing to another. Idomineo is being presented by Victorian Opera and Opera Australia at the Palais Theatre in St Kilda. There's a performance tonight at 7.30pm and another performance on Saturday at 7.30pm. Go to victorianopera.com.au for details. I've been speaking with the production's director, Lindy Hume. Lindy, thank you so much for joining us on the program today. My pleasure, Richard. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 